Years ago, Francis Schaeffer, uh, who is a Christian writer and philosopher, uh, began to speak and teach and write extensively uh, on the subject of biblical worldview. And biblical worldview is a phrase that we often use in Christian circles. We certainly use it in our teaching and preaching, but I don't think we've done an adequate job of developing what actually is defined by a biblical worldview. And so biblical worldview is defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist, and such truth is defined by the Bible. Now, in a technical sense, uh, those who teach and preach on a biblical worldview would add these aspects that compromise a biblical worldview or compose. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Uh, Salvation is a gift from God and cannot be earned. Satan is real and active among us. Christians have a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people, and the Bible's accurate in all that it teaches. Now, that's a kind of a technical list, and my guess is no one got that written down quickly enough, and so let me give you kind of a summary statement, and this one's a little easier to remember. It's a worldview that everything is viewed through the lens of, of Scripture. We don't view Uh, issues through the lens of uh, political platforms. We don't view issues through the lens of uh, cultural acceptance. We don't view issues through the lens of humanistic psychology that in a biblical worldview, we view everything and our positions are informed by Scripture. That's what a biblical worldview is. Now, uh, that's neat to learn and that's helpful, I hope, but what difference does holding to a biblical worldview actually make in the real life that we're all living in the real culture Life's playing out in. Uh, Listen to some statistics about biblical worldview and those who hold to them and those who do not. Uh, People's views on morally acceptable behavior are deeply impacted by their worldview. Upon comparing the perspective of those who have a biblical worldview and those who do not, listen to the disparity between these statistics. Uh, For those who hold to a biblical worldview, they were 31 times less likely to accept cohabitation or living together. They were 18 times less likely to endorse drunkenness. They were 11 times less likely to describe adultery as morally acceptable. Uh, In addition, less than one half of 1% of those with a biblical worldview said voluntary exposure to pornography was morally acceptable compared to 39% of those who don't hold to a biblical worldview. A similar Minuscule proportion percentage endorsed abortion uh, compared to 46% of adults who lack a biblical worldview. So about a half of a percent of those who hold to a biblical worldview uh, would denounce abortion. 46% of those who do not uh, say that that is a morally acceptable choice. Now, let me ask you a very important question this morning. Raise your hand if you're grieved at the direction of our culture. Would you just... Yeah, and if your hand's not raised, either A, you're sleeping, or B, you're drunk, and that's bad as well, all right? Uh, my hand's up. Like, it's not hard to look around and be grieved, and, and I've heard so many of our older folks say, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not as grieved for me. I've kind of lived the majority of my life. I'm grieved for my kids or my grandkids. What kind of world are they going to inherit coming behind me? And so, uh, but, so I'm very concerned about that. But I'm also equally concerned about the way that we as Christians are addressing the issues in culture, these moral issues uh, in culture. And the reality is, uh, my concern is, 
we want people to change their positions and their choices without having a change of worldview. Why would anyone agree with your position on sexuality, the definition of marriage, the sanctity of life, or other hot-button cultural issues if, if they first did not agree uh, with your worldview? And so uh, let me put it another way. My concern is this, is that we find ourselves as Christians getting angry uh, at the people who don't hold a Christian worldview when they don't know Christ. And so there's no reason for a person to hold to your positions, if you're a follower of Christ, and they're not, apart from a change of worldview. Now, when we disregard that, that, that all the issues playing out in culture are simply the overflow of a person's worldview, when we disregard that, we usually respond in one of two ways. Uh, sometimes uh, we try and gain power over the culture through political means so that we can legislate our worldview on those who disagree with that. And on the other side of that, uh, sometimes... Uh, we can preach and, and engage culture uh, in a kind of a culture war Christianity where we can openly proclaim the love of Christ, but to do so in incredibly unloving ways. And so all of us in the room, I think, if you do a biblical worldview, you're certainly grieved by the fact that culture is moving away from that. And so what we need in our country is not a change of opinion on uh, cultural issues. What we need is a change of worldview because Worldview is what forms people's opinions, which in turn drives their behavior. Now, so all of that is the overflow. So what you see going on in culture that you're grieved by, that's simply the overflow of a person's worldview. And so we cannot expect people to change their behavior and be angry at them for not changing their behavior until there's first a change of worldview. Now, here's the good news. You know how a person's worldview changes? They have an encounter with a resurrected Jesus. Like he can just upend someone's worldview in a moment and then once he transforms their heart, he begins to inform their worldview and the overflow of that plays out in a culture. That's exactly how that happens. And so, turn to Acts chapter 17 this morning as we continue our series through the book of Acts was a message titled, How to Be a World Changer. Uh, Paul here is preaching in, in some of those hostile environments you're gonna find and, and what Paul does is he addresses this worldview issue head on and turn the culture begins to change around them. And so as we've been teaching through the book of Acts, by the time we get to Acts chapter 17, uh, here Paul has already lost his closest friends in the Jewish community. Uh, he's been beaten. Uh, he's been imprisoned for the gospel's sake. Uh, he's been stoned and left for dead only to get up and continue on that missionary journey in Acts chapter 40. He's been deserted by some of his co-laborers, remember that? Remember that, and they had that showdown in chapter 15, and they said, hey, let's let John Mark jo rejoin us again. Paul said, I'm not having it. That's a paraphrase, all right? And so he's parted ways with those who were once there on the journey with him. Uh, he's been pushed out of Philippi, where he ministered uh, in Acts chapter 16 to Lydia and a, a demon-possessed girl and a hopeless jailer who all gave their lives to Christ. And so, so at this point in Acts chapter 17, he's gone about 100 miles along the edge of the Aegean Sea in his missionary journey, and he's in a new city named Thessalonica where we find him at the beginning of Acts chapter 17. All right, so let's pick up the text. We're going to look at verses 1 down through verse 9 this morning. It says, now when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and 
proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Saul, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and, and not a few of the leading women. So there was some evangelistic fruit there. But listen to verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, uh, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's kind of where we got the title for the message. And Jason's received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so here in Acts chapter 17, uh, we're going to look and see the boldness of the early church. And we're going to find in this passage, verses 1 through 9, two things that we must do if we, in fact, want to be world changers in a culture that is hostile towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first thing we see in this passage that Paul's modeling and that we should subscribe to uh, is this, is you should keep the main thing the main thing. That's prophetic, right? I went to seminary to to learn that. (laughs) And so what we see here is uh, if we're not careful, we're tempted to believe that the, the great moral need of our culture is some kind of moral reform, but that, that's not true. Moral reform is the overflow, not the need. If you study some of the great revival movements in all of human history, moral reform did not lead to revival. When genuine revival came, the overflow of that was incredible moral reform. People paying restitution for crimes, people shutting down uh, liquor establishments, those kinds of things. And so moral reform is not the great need of any culture. It's the overflow of when there's an encounter with a risen Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't get sidetracked on these missionary journeys preaching cultural morality. Since this pattern over and over throughout the New Testament, uh, Paul's approach on his missionary journey was pretty straightforward. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 3 again. What's it say? He reasoned with them uh, from the scriptures. Now, the first part of that says, as was his custom. This, this was a pattern over and over in his life. He would go into the place that he knew would be hostile to the gospel. And so he would reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And so many times when Paul would have a Jewish audience, sometime because of his mastery over the law, remember he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the law ever, Paul would start back at the Old Testament and say, hey, let me, let me run the story all the way through so that you can see this and hopefully have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. So we see him over and over in another Jewish synagogue in verses 10 and 11 after he was kicked out of Thessalonica, he does the same thing. Right? He just knocks the dust off his sandals and says, you know what, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to go to the next city, and I'm going to preach Christ, and Christ resurrected. Uh, and then we see him standing before the crowd of intellectuals who worshiped many gods down in verses 16 through uh, 31 that we'll look at next week. And uh, here's what they said. They just said, this guy's a babbler. One of my friends, he had a grandfather. He lived to be 93 years old. And up until the time that he died, every time he would see me, he would say, now, are you still one of those babbler preachers? And I said, what are you talking my, my friend would say, he means Baptist. He's not trying to be offensive, right? They, they looked at Paul and they said, hey, this guy's a babbler. As a matter of fact, the description in verse 
18, uh, they said he's a preacher of foreign divinities. Why? Because he's preaching Jesus and uh, the resurrection. This was Paul's MO. He'd go into a place that's hostile to the gospel. He didn't say, hey, fix this and fix this, and this is what's wrong with your culture, and these are the habits you need to clean up, and here's the moral form. He would go in and preach the resurrected Christ because Christ, not moral reform, was the great need of everyone he encountered. And here's the reality. That is still true today. There's a temptation to think that that, that message Right, the gospel message is not enough in our culture uh, because our cultural issues are, are so terrible. And if you read anything about just secular history, every culture thinks that their culture is probably the worst one that's uh, ever lived. But if we read the rest of chapter 17 this morning, we, we couldn't defend that position with integrity. If you read that whole chapter, you know how Paul describes this culture that he's preaching the resurrected Christ in? Uh, listen to some of the terms. Uh, these are not compliments. They're filled with idolatry is what he says. They're uh, filled with legalism. They're bound with pride. They're, they're guilty openly and unashamedly of uh, adultery. And so there truly is no new sin under the sun. So there's all kinds of moral cultural reform that's needed uh, in every context that Paul's preaching, and certainly here in chapter 17. Uh, but according to verse 17, Paul just walks in and says, Hey, I see all the, I see the idolatry. I see your heart's filled with pride. I see your open, unashamed adultery that's taking place, and I'm not going to address all those behaviors. What I'm going to do is preach the gospel and the resurrected Christ, because when you encounter him, it changes your worldview, and when your worldview changes, guess what? It changes the culture as the overflow. And so, if you're listening, say amen. Let's agree right here and now to quit being angry at non-Christians for not holding to Christian worldviews. Now, i got to pause here for a minute. Sorry for the awkward pause here. Uh, I was just informed uh, a little bit ago before preaching. They said, hey, uh, just FYI, the sermon timer in the back is broken. And I said, praise God, right? <laughs> Last one. <laughs> Peers of Pentecostals crept in among us this morning. Well, last week I was bragging to all the pastors. I said, this is a true story. It's totally not notes. This is for free, all right? Uh, last week in a sermon meeting, we talked about the sermon, and hey, how long did you preach? How long did you preach? All of our campus pastors, and, and I said, guys, I preached for 35 minutes and 50 seconds, including the bumper. And uh, they kind of start looking at me and looking at each other, and I said, what? They said, well, that's not quite what we heard. We heard you preach for like 48, 49 minutes. I said, I'm telling you, when I looked up, here's the timer, 35, 56. And they get on the call, and they say, Kyle, can you come in here? And Kyle comes in, won't he make eye contact with me, nor should he have. And he said, hey, bad news, uh, there was a 10-minute section of your sermon where the timer was not working. You, in fact, preached 49 minutes. And I said, for the glory of God. Amen? <laughs> so I just want to hit the timer there for your sake. But here's the good news. I'm not bound by the timer. Amen? <laughs> and so the reality is, is sometimes we... We just, this idea that, that somehow we look out the culture and, and listen, we're grieved by it, right? We're grieved by it. But if we're not careful, we're angry at it. And we expect people to 
change their behavior when they've not had a change of worldview and they shouldn't have a change of worldview until they have an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And so what's Paul doing? Listen, there's all kinds of immorality going on in his culture and in one through nine, what's he do? He walks in and says, hey, I'm not gonna focus on any of that. I'm gonna preach the resurrected Christ. They run him out of town. Verses 10, 11, he goes to the next town. I'm gonna preach the resurrected Christ. Verses 16 through 31, he goes back in. All kinds of immorality going on. He says, I'm gonna preach the resurrected Christ. Listen, the gospel is still good news and powerful to change anything going on in our culture. And that's the foundation of moral change is preaching Christ in a culture that's hostile towards him. That's what Paul's modeling here over and over. Now, do we desire to see Christian principles played out in society, even through legislative process? Yes, why? Because we believe it's good for human flourishing. Right, we believe that. But I want you to listen closely because I think here's where maybe we're, we're getting it wrong and, and we don't see this modeled by Paul here and all throughout Acts chapter 17. All right, so here's, here's what I want you to understand, that when we're preaching Christ and we're, we're hoping that people have an encounter with Christ so they have a change of worldview because that leads to a change in culture, uh, here's my concern. Our motive should be love, not anger. Our motive should be love, not anger. And here Paul's, preaching in all these places, being totally mistreated for preaching Jesus, to totally, I mean, ran out of town, chained up in chapter 16, remember that? And so what would cause a guy over and over and say, hey, I'm just out, like, roaming around, right? I'm out doing missions work, and, and I think what would be fun would be to go into a place where they're going to hate me, right? Nobody's doing that in this room. And so what would... Why would Paul do that over and over and getting ran out and beaten and all these kinds of things? Why? Because of his deep love for Christ and his deep love for the people that he's preaching Christ to. And so that has to be the motive of our hearts. Or guess what? Eventually, you'll, you'll just give up. And so Paul's pattern is to go in there and preach Christ in every single opportunity because he knew that an encounter with Christ would lead to a change of worldview and a change of worldview leads to a change in their culture so he kept the main thing the main thing now here's the big question if that's what it looks like to change a culture by a change of worldview from an encounter with the resurrected Christ and you and I are followers of Christ here, here's the question this this morning if that's how this works uh, could we articulate a defense of the resurrection you see we encounter people who are doing things we disagree with uh, what we hopefully know by now right, is that that's just because that's their worldview. And if we're telling them that, hey, your worldview is lacking, and they say, well, why, why do you think, what's, how is your worldview any different? Could we articulate a defense of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Uh, other than just saying, well, I just think that's, you, you should believe this, this is what I believe. That doesn't hold any weight in culture uh, anymore. So Dr. Gary Habermas is a Christian professor, author, Prolific author, one of the world's scholars on the resurrection of Christ, uh, had him for a professor in seminary for a class. And uh, Dr. Habermas has put together what he calls the minimal facts argument about defending uh, the resurrection. Now, here's what the minimal facts argument is. He said, hey, these are facts about the resurrection that anyone agrees with regardless of whether or not they hold to a Christian worldview. As a matter of fact, these are facts about the resurrection that even liberals, uh, theologians, or agnostics, or even atheists agree that these things are demonstrably, factually 
true. And so, now here's what I've uh, learned, you know, from just pastoring is this, is that for some of you, uh, anything beyond helpful application can get a yawn, right? Like, hey, I'm just here to, to help you help me a little bit from the pulpit, you know, things are a little hard, I'm just struggling, could you just give me some help? And so let me, let me encourage you to, to dial in on, on this little part of apologetics right here, because here's why, here's what Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. That's what, what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, the oldest creed of the church. Let me give you the Cunningham paraphrase. If Christ is not raised, you're living a lie, is what that means. And so listen to these minimal facts argument from Gary Habermas. You don't have to worry about writing these down, because here's, here's what we all know. I'm going to talk too fast for you to write them down. Amen? So you can look them up later. Gary Habermas, minimal facts. Let me just walk through this. And again, everyone agrees with this, whether they hold to a worldview of Christ or not. So here they are, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Nobody denies, that's a historical fact. Jesus was crucified. That very soon afterwards, his followers had experiences that they would account, that they had encountered the resurrected Christ. Now, there's disagreement about whether they did, obviously, but even the atheist scholars say, hey, they certainly thought they had an experience with the resurrected Christ. The tomb was empty. No one disputes that. E even Jews, this idea that, that the body was stolen, but guess what? A stolen body still produces an empty tomb. Their lives were transformed as a result of the resurrected Christ to the point they're willing to be martyred. Now, can, can we just agree that I'm going to preach Christ if it's you know, selfish benefit and I'm one of the disciples, but right up until the time uh, that they said, hey, we're going to boil you in oil, or hey, Bartholomew, we're going to flay off your skin, I would have said, you know what? I was just joking. Right? You ever get to that point in an argument with you argue with your spouse and all of a sudden you have this illumination that I'm wrong. Now, if you're married, you know what to do at that point, don't you? Full speed ahead. Amen? <laughs> but if you're going to cut my skin off, for something I'm preaching that I know is not true, I'm backing down. Martyred for their faith, transforms. These things were taught very early, uh, right around or soon after the crucifixion. Now, why is that important? The longer these things are taught between the actual event, the more time that error can creep in. So even agnostic and atheist scholars say, yeah, they were preaching that shortly after the supposed resurrection, they would argue. He would point to the testimony of James, Jesus' un believing brother. Now, if anybody's going to come to faith in Christ, it's the own brother of Jesus. But he said, I will not, I will not believe until I've seen him, right? And then the Paul, the persecutor Paul, becomes a believer after this incredible encounter with the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Now, individually, those are neat things. Those are interesting things, but they don't carry a tremendous amount. But collectively, it builds an incredible case Jesus was crucified, the tomb was empty, his disciples said he was risen from the dead. Their lives were transformed, even to the point of becoming martyrs. They made these claims right after the crucifixion, and his own brother and the persecutor of the church saw are radically transformed as well. Now where we got the title for the message, How to Be a World Changer, is from Acts chapter 6, when it gives this description, it said, hey, these are those who turned the world upside down. And I want you to know how they did it. They didn't go and preach cultural morality. They go and preach political platforms. They went in and preached Christ, atoning for our sins, buried and raised the third day, and invited people to repent and believe. And so let me say it one more time, and then we're going to move on. The key to changing the culture 
is a change in worldview. And the key to changing to a Christian worldview is an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Jesus, not cultural morality, is our message. Cultural morality, apart from Jesus, that's what the Pharisees were after. Let's not settle for a Christless Christianity so so that we don't have to feel uncomfortable in our own country. Listen, because here's why. Uh, This isn't our home. We're aliens. The Bible describes we're citizens of heaven, so let's make sure that our worldview is formed and centered on and our message proclaimed is not cultural morality. It's Jesus Christ crucified and nothing else. And so... Let's be grieved for those who've not encountered Jesus instead of angry at them for not holding to our worldview. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing, and just so we're clear, the main thing is Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. And so here's Paul going into hostile culture, all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of adultery, all kinds of pride, all kinds of legalism, all kinds of issues. And, and we see Paul over and over, verse 1 through 9, verse 10 through 11, verse 16 through 31, goes to the place and just says, hey, I'm going to preach Christ crucified. Because if you encounter him, and all your views on these other things will change, and the culture around you will change as well. And so not only do we see the message that Paul preached to a hostile culture, Christ crucified, we see the benefit of how he preached it. So the second truth I want you to see in this passage is this, is that when we're contending for the faith, we should contend without being contentious. The culture in Acts chapter 17, incredibly hostile. We know this because both Acts 17 and then Paul tells us himself in 1 Thessalonians, which is a broader description of his encounter with the Thessalonians in verses 1 through 9 in chapter 17. So Paul walked in the synagogue and proclaimed Jesus and The early verses there in chapter 17 says, hey, there was a good chunk of them that said, we agree. We're going to start following Christ as well. But not everyone felt that way. Look down at verses 5 through 7 again here in chapter 17. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. And set the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out of the crowd, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason's received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king being Jesus. Now, if you've ever got involved in Bible study, one of the great tools or techniques of Bible study is uh, cross-referencing. And so in studying Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, we can cross-reference that over to 1 Thessalonians, the letter to the church, to these converts at Thessalonica, and we can find some more details about the level of hostility that Paul's experiencing and how he responds to that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was was not in vain. He said, hey, there's a lot of people wanting to Christ, right? We see that at the beginning of chapter 17. He says this, uh, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Like, can you just see a pattern in Paul's life? I'm going to go in and preach Christ, and I'm gonna, it's almost literally going to kill me, and I'm going to go to the next place, and I'm going to preach Christ again. Over and over. Now, can we just be honest? If that was us, after a while, <laughs> I would have said, hey, it's getting old. Amen? 
Hey, this is not fun. Paul just keeps moving ahead. And he says, we, we've been treated shamefully at Philippi. And as you know, listen to this. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of, here, listen to these two words, much conflict. And so that detail he's giving 1 Thessalonians 2 to the church at Thessalonica is referencing back to these people he's preaching Christ to in chapter 17 of Acts, verses 1 through 9. That's a cross-reference between those two. And he's, he's extrapolating. He says, hey, it was hard. People did not appreciate what we're preaching. Now, here's the reality. It's easy to read about persecution and conflict around the world and certainly in the pages of Scripture and, uh, and not, not relate, right? Like I've had p- people not receive the message I've been sharing, but, but I've never been shackled for preaching Christ. I've never been beaten. I've never been shipwrecked or any of those kind of things uh, in doing that. But I want to remind you today that because the conflict around us is is different in in this culture, it's not insignificant. And boldness is still required to be a world changer. Now, everybody look up here, right? Boldness is not the same as rudeness. Did you know that? Let me let you know a little secret here this morning, a, a wisdom nugget, if you will, right? It's hard to tell people that Jesus loves them when they're not even convinced that you like them. Right? It's hard to preach the love of Christ in unloving ways and then wonder why people don't respond to that truth. And so we're to practice the phrase that author Russell Moore has coined it. Uh, he calls it convictional kindness. Now, what, why is convictional kindness stood why is boldness stood I mean listen nobody's running us out of town nobody's shackling us up you know to the prison like Acts 16 a mob's not coming out right telling people we're preaching some foreign divinities here's where our culture is most hostile to the message of the gospel and I think we can all agree this morning that one of the buzzwords in our culture is the word uh, inclusive or inclusivity or inclusivism right that's a big buzzword uh, in our culture. And inclusivity to the, to the extreme is the practical outcome of moral relativism, which says there no longer exists objective truth. I mean, if you think the objective truth still is preached in our culture, then you've never encountered common core math. Amen? Like here, I got, I got a master's degree. I can't do fourth grade math. You know, go help, go find your mom. I don't know. And so here's what sets us at odds against that message that, that all truth is relative. Here's why, and I want you to listen, all right? If we're faithful, we're preaching an exclusive gospel in a culture of inclusivism. We're saying that Jesus really is the only way to heaven in a culture that's preaching that all forms of spirituality are valid. I, I've never, over the last years, I've never ran into so many people in my life who says, well, I'm not really a church person, or I'm not, you know, I don't do this or that kind of thing, but I'm a very spiritual person. You know what I think when someone says that? I just think, you're a pothead. That's what I think, Right? Man. 
Maybe I should have kept that on the inside, amen? <laughs> you know, I'm spiritual. Thank you for that wisdom, Cheech and Chong, right? You know, the guy's driving home down Cincinnati, Dayton, little dispensary, people around the corner. I had no idea so many people in this area had glaucoma, amen? <laughs> Lined up around the building, hungry. I'm just going to stop, all right? And let's just turn the timer off, all right? Let's get the train back on the tracks. Here's what's happening. If we're faithful to gospel, we're going to model what Paul's modeling here. We're going to preach an exclusive message that Christ is the only way to heaven against the backdrop of a culture that says, all forms of spirituality are valid. And a matter of fact, if you preach anything else, if you preach that there's a narrow is the way and few enter in and Jesus is the only door you can go through, what they're gonna say is not only is that not true, uh, that it's, that it's uh, bigoted, it's narrow-minded, right? But this is the clear teaching of scripture. Listen to some of these verses. John 14, 6, probably the most prominent one. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me, through me. Acts chapter four, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Acts 10, 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him re receives forgiveness of sins. Here it is. Through his name. Not any name, through his name. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, not just agrees with him intellectually, who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You should tell me a person that rejects Christ is going to spend eternity in a Christless hell? That's what the Word of God says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God, there is one mediator or access to God between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Over and over, Jesus says, I'm the door, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Listen, there is no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved except my name. That is an exclusive gospel in a culture of inclusivism. And if we want to see great change in our culture, we want to see revival change the hearts of people, let's keep preaching Christ crucified. Amen? Despite what comes against us, despite the labels thrown at us, he is the hope of the world. And so there's going to be boldness required on our parts. You're like, I've never been beaten or shipwrecked. I'm probably not going to jail. But listen, you're going to be accused of being a bigot and intolerant and all those kind of things. If you preach an exclusive gospel, but here's the reality. Anything other than exclusive gospel does not save. Now, I do know that we are out of time. <laughs> and so how did Paul push through that? Well, we see in 1 Thessalonians 2, and I'm time to go all the way through it. Here, here's what Paul said. Paul said, at the end of the day, I want to please God more than I want to please men. He said, at the end of the day, the thing that motivated me despite all this pushback was more than having you like me. I wanted to please the Lord. And what motivated me was not being well received. It was your salvation. What motivated Paul? What's going to motivate us for boldness? It's the same thing. It's love. It's love. 
Let's not lose sight of the fact that Paul could have crushed them under the weight of his intellect, right? He was a scholar in law. Listen, Paul was Ben Shapiro before Ben Shapiro was cool. But listen to how Paul describes his approach. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 through 8. Listen to these words. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but, but also ourselves. Listen to this. Because you had become very dear to us. Paul was unwilling to compromise his worldview, but he was also unconditional in his love for the people that opposed it. Now, here's the question. Would people say the same thing about us? Would people look at us and say, hey, they were uncompromising in their gospel, but they were unconditional in their love for people who didn't hold to it? Would they say the same thing about us? And if not, they just say, hey, you're just interested in being right and arguing, debating your unkind and listen what happens is we become pharisees and i want you to hear me this morning being a pharisee is not morally superior uh, choice to being a liberal both are wrong amen one's compromising one's a lack of love and so the problems we see in culture is simply overflow of a worldview of people who don't know jesus and you can look at those people and the ills of our culture and you can look at them at the enemy and be angry at them or you can look at them at the mission field and be broken for them. And I promise you, the second choice is the better one. No one's ever been scolded or shamed into the kingdom of God. So in a culture of religious inclusivism, let's keep preaching Christ. An exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And let's make sure, if we get it right, that the people who disagree with that message would never doubt our deep, unconditional love for them. And if we can do that, preach Christ crucified, not moral stuff, not political stuff, preach Christ crucified in a way that no one ever doubts our deep, deep love for them. If we do that, guess what, church? And maybe one day, in our little corner of the mission field here, people look back and say, you know what, those people at Liberty Heights, these were those who turned the world upside down. Lord, find us faithful. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one is this. Have you received the resurrected Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not asking you to clean up your life. I'm not asking you to stop sinning. I'm not asking you what you've done last week or last night. I'm asking you this. Has there come a time and a place in your life where you confessed that you were a sinner in need of forgiveness and your sin had separated you from God? And you declare that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried, and rose the third day. And when you encountered the resurrected Christ, you were deeply grieved by your sins. And you repented or turned from them and trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Have you encountered 
the resurrected Jesus. Not morality. Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ, or you're not sure if you've ever received Christ, then right now, right where you're sitting, you can pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you do that right now? Would you lay aside the self-righteousness of a moral life? Would you lay aside the lie that somehow you've got to clean up your life to come to Christ? Right now, by faith, where you're at, would you repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If you do that today by faith, if you pray and receive him, the Bible says you can be saved right now. Your sins can be forgiven. Would you do that right now? For those of you in the room who are saved, let me just ask you a couple questions to ask the Spirit of God to search your heart in light of what we've been taught today. You don't have to raise your hands or anything like that, but I want to ask you this. Is it time to confess and repent at being angry at non-Christians? Is it time to confess and repent preaching politics or empty morality instead of preaching Christ? If that's true, would you, just, would you just confess that to the Lord? Would you just repent of that? And would you ask the Lord to do something inside of you that left to yourself you would not, could not do? Would you say, Lord, grow my love for the people who disagree with me? God, help my words to be seasoned with grace. God, help my Facebook posts, my tweets, to be saturated in love. And will we all, me included, just confess that to hope for moral change in our culture apart from Christ is empty moralism. Let our deepest griefs be that people have not encountered the resurrected Christ. And until they do, there is no hope for the world around us. Father, I pray this morning that no one would leave here today without knowing Jesus. And for God, for those of us who do know Jesus... God, let our deep love for Jesus and other people cause us to be people of deep moral conviction. No compromising the gospel despite what culture is preaching, despite what they call us, despite hostility. But God, give us wisdom and empowerment to do it in a way that even the people who disagree with the gospel never doubt our deep unconditional love for them and so Lord in whatever way you see fit in our little corner of the vineyard here help us to be world changers for Jesus Christ the world needs Jesus let's preach him let's preach him in love Lord we trust you for the results pray in Christ's name Amen